There is another psalm that stands out for me sometimes, especially as I look around. You know, this is the time of year where we, we go back, we review the best movies and the people who have passed away and all of those things. And sometimes I listen to all of that, and, and I, it's the 73rd Psalm. It's a Psalm of Asaph. And Asaph said he started looking around at his world, and he started seeing the people who don't really pay attention to God, who don't really acknowledge God. And it seemed to him from his finite view of life that everybody who doesn't follow God seems to do great. He talks about how they have no problems and they have all the money they need. And, and he says, and for me, my foot almost slipped i almost slipped i almost fell away from you and and sometimes i struggle with those realities many years ago i had a friend come to me and uh, he was a friend a fellow believer happened to be my insurance guy at the time and while he believed fully that God was a provider and a protector, he also believed that sometimes there were things that we could do to prepare. And so he, he shared with me the need to uh, maybe have a supplemental disability policy. He said, Scott, you know, you use your voice. What happens if you couldn't use your voice? How would you make a living? And that was long before I had become aware of the joy and the benefits of using a smoker and smoking ribs and, and brisket and cream cheese and other things. Now I know what God's plan could be. But anyway, and I said, you know, you're right. And there was money in the budget, in, the, in, in my benefit budget for it. So I got this very lengthy application, began filling out, answering all the questions. One of the questions seemed to me like a throwaway question. Yes or no? Have you ever visited a chiropractor? I checked yes and moved on with the questionnaire. A couple days later, I received a frantic call from my friend. Scott, I'm afraid they're going to put a rider on your policy. You didn't tell me you'd been to a chiropractor. I didn't know we knew each other that well. You know? <laughs> but, and I said, yeah, what's the big deal? Oh, they're going to send you, you're going to get a call We've got to answer a whole lot of questions. Oh, man, was it ever a nightmare? I got this call, you know, why had I gone to a chiropractor? And what was the diagnosis? How long did my treatments last? Was I still being treated? Was there a history of back problems in my family? Had I ever been recommended for back surgery? And on and on and on. I didn't even have the heart to tell them it was for my shoulder. You know, <laughs> they just made the assumption Finally, the company agreed to accept me, but they put a three-year moratorium. I couldn't even say the word chiropractor with some affection, and I would be canceled. By the way, I still have the policy. On the one hand, I get it. Insurance companies want to reduce their risk, and I know how all that works. But at the same time, on a larger scale, I struggled. If I would have just slipped and said no, nobody would have ever checked. Nobody would have ever worried about it. I could have just gone on my merry way. And sometimes I see and read about and witness people who are less than honest, less than people of integrity, and it seems like they're doing fine in life. They seem to flourish. 
And I seem to ask, where is God when my integrity and my honesty might cost me a little bit? Sometimes I ask the question, where is God when my honesty costs me a little more on my taxes? Where is God when my integrity costs me to get passed over for a promotion? Where is God when my unwillingness to fudge on the numbers gets me labeled as not being a team player? Where's my reward for doing the right thing? And then it gets even worse. Where's God when my job is eliminated? Where's God when my world falls apart? And if you have ever struggled at any level with those kinds of questions, then you're beginning to enter the world of our text for the next few months. Because starting today, we are going to go through an exploration of the Old Testament book of Job. I would invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Job. Uh, It is in your Old Testament, and it comes right before Psalms. So typically, if you open your Bible and just let it fall open, it usually falls open at the Psalms, and then you can go back a few pages till you get to the book of Job. Now, to understand this book and to kind of launch into it, we need to get a little background. I need to give you a little bit of history and background so that you and I will be on the same page. The human author of Job, the person God inspired to put it down on paper, is a mystery. Many claim that Moses may have been the one who actually wrote the text, But we don't know. We can't say for sure. What we can say is this. When they put together the Old Testament many, many years ago, the book of Job was included without question. It was a book that was seen as a book telling us about God, telling us about ourselves, and telling us about the nature of faith in difficult times. Now, We have evidence from the first chapter that Job most likely lived long before Moses had written down the law in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Because in chapter 1 and verse 5, we see Job acting as a priest for his family, offering sacrifices to God for his family. And that was something that was done long before the law was established. Abraham did that. And and so knowing that, estimates are that Job probably lived somewhere between 2400 and 2100 B.C. or B.C.E. if you want to use that. So over 2,000 years before before Christ, Job lived. Most likely, the story of Job was part of oral tradition. And the earliest writing we have of Job is about the 6th century B.C. Now, there are those who question whether Job is actually a real person or not. For me, that's not a debate. You see, Job is mentioned in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 14, verse 14, in the same breath as Noah and Daniel. And in fact, in verse 20, it's an utterance of the Lord. He mentions men that were righteous like Job and Noah and Daniel. So 
And then in the New Testament, in James chapter 5, James mentions about having the patience of Job. So for me, that's not really a problem. Job was a real person. Job is said to have lived in the land of Uz. Now, that's another challenge for scholars. The best that we can come up with is the land of Uz was probably south and east of the Dead Sea, most likely in the northern part of what we would call on our maps Saudi Arabia. This book is very, very unique in its structure. Chapters 1 and 2 give us a prologue, an introduction. And chapter 42 gives us the epilogue. It brings it all to a close. And the style of writing in chapters 1 and 2 and 42 is prose. It's like a story. That's, chapters 1 and 2 and 42, they're easy to preach because there's a story. It's a narrative. But chapters 3 through 41 are all poetry. The words that Job speaks, the words that his friends speak, and the words that God speaks are all put together in poetry. That's a challenge for us sometimes. And I would, I would challenge you, if you're reading Job for the very first time, and I would encourage you to read through the book of Job maybe a couple of times before we get through it. We're, we're going to, if God wills, we'll go early into March in the book of Job. Read it slowly. Read it carefully. There are going to be some uh, word pictures that you may not understand, but at certain times you're going to read something and go, whoa. Now, now bear in mind this, and this is my spoiler alert. When you're reading the parts of Job that are his friends, remember this. At the end of the book, God says, what they said about me wasn't right. Very important. Job puts us face to face with several things. In Job, in this very first chapter, we are going to come face-to-face with the fact that there really is an unseen world, and in that unseen world, there is conflict that takes place that none of us are fully aware of in our day-to-day lives. The other thing that we are going to come face-to-face with in the book of Job is the essence of faith. What does faith look like when I have lost everything? And Job is going to be an example to us of somebody who clings to his faith, sometimes like he's clinging to a cliff with with white knuckles, just kind of holding on by his fingertips. Job will reveal to us, as I've already said, that wrong thinking about God can lead us to wrong conclusions about how life works. Job will open our eyes to the sovereignty of God, who is never at a loss of what to do and who does not have to answer to our demands. Job will open our eyes to the restorative power of God and to God's deep love for those who follow him, even when they go through difficulties. And Job will remind us that we live in a broken world 
in which sin has brought about the reality of suffering and it is no respecter of persons. We all suffer. We all go through difficulties at one time or another. It's not that we suffer in Job. That's not the issue. In Job, it's how do I respond to difficult times? So with all of that in mind, Job 1. Let me read the first five verses. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people in the east. His sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, Perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. So we get a brief word picture of this man, Job, and it tells us a lot. And in essence, what it tells us is this. Godly character defines a good life. The first thing we find out about Job is not about his wealth. You know, that's kind of where we start sometimes. Oh, what a great person. Why, they own this and they run this and they do that. Oh, and by the way, they love Jesus too. You know, the writer to Job, when putting it down, says, Job lived in the east near us and he was blameless, upright, God-fearing, and shunning evil. Four characteristics that define who Job is. The word blameless is a term that means to be complete, to be well-behaved, to be civilized, to have integrity, to be morally ethical. The word upright is a person who doesn't cut corners. They are true to their word. It reflects the character of God whose ways are right and just. We, we could substitute the word integrity and still be okay there. And that word upright comes right hand in hand with fears God. Fears God doesn't just mean he was afraid of God, and yet there's that element to it. But that he had a deep awe and respect of God. That he knew that God was the great eternal God and he wanted to do nothing to bring offense to God. He understood the holiness of God and he would not violate that. As a result, he was a man who shunned evil. To shun means to turn away from. It means to literally to abandon. In other words, Job was active in staying away from anything that was not of God. Now, that character is not only mentioned here in verse 1. It's the same description God uses of him as we'll see in verse 8. How would God describe you? Something to think about. 
And notice carefully, his character is described, as I said, before his wealth, but he was wealthy. Now, wealth in those days was measured a little differently than we measure wealth today. Wealth in those days was measured by family and possessions, namely livestock. Wealth today is measured by net worth. Notice, too, something to be very important. In the Old Testament, someone's wealth was a sign of blessing from God, but Jesus changes that in the New Testament, and he says, your wealth is to be stored up in heaven, your treasures in heaven. Your wealth isn't what you own. It's the character of your heart. I have known some extremely spiritually wealthy people who were not wealthy by the world's standards, but the depth in their heart was something else. Job is a man who's wealthy in his character, and God blessed him. He had seven sons and three daughters. He had three kids. That was a symbol, too, of the blessing of God upon Job's wife, who bore those children. He owns all of these sheep and cattle and camels and oxen and everything. And that means he had to have land enough to manage all of that livestock. And he had to have servants to help manage the livestock and the lands. And then he had a reputation. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. He was an A-lister. That's what we call him today, right? If you're having a party and Job comes, it's a great party. Job was known. His character was known far and wide. And what's even better is his children liked each other. They enjoyed one another. So when each of his sons had a birthday, he would hold a feast. I'm thinking that's a good tradition for the Howington family in Wheaton to start. A feast in February. We could feast for two weeks. We're a week apart. Wouldn't that be great? Just this feast. But they would hold this feast and they would invite their sisters and they would just celebrate. So seven times a year, Job's children got together and feasted. They enjoyed one another. And Job was concerned about the spiritual welfare of his children. So at the end of each of those feasts, Job would sacrifice for each of his children. That's ten animals that he would sacrifice to purify them, to say, I'm just, you know, this kind of hedging my bets, as it were. Perhaps they may have sinned and cursed God in their hearts, so I'm going to intervene, I'm going to intercede for my children and offer a sacrifice so that they are are pure before God. And that's something that he could do in that time frame. Now, we have an advantage as we read this book of Job because we are what they call third-person omnipresent and actually third-person omniscient too. In other words, we're standing out here watching. We get to see everything. We know why everything happens. Remember that because Job doesn't. In Job's life, He sacrifices. He doesn't know what happens beginning in verse 6. Follow along with me beginning in verse 6. One day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, 
from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You've blessed the work of his hand so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand, strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, everything he has is in your power. But on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. The scene shifts. And now we have the antagonist of the story. Now, our text reads Satan, but a more accurate translation would be the Satan, or even more accurate would be the adversary. The realm of the adversary, notice where he comes from, roaming to and from about the earth. I, I, I think of 1 Peter 5, 8. Our enemy, the devil, like a roaring lion, prowls about seeking whom he may devour. There is this unseen battle that is constantly being waged between the forces of our enemy, the forces of the adversary, and our God. And it will be waged until God finally says, enough. What God does when Satan comes up or the adversary comes, God says to the adversary, have you considered my servant Job? He's, he's blameless, he's upright, he fears God, he shuns evil, and Satan maligns the character of Job, and he maligns the character of God. Job only serves you because you have protected him. That's wrong thinking about God. Wrong thinking about God says that people only serve God because he gives them good things. Wrong thinking about God that's going to prevail in this book is bad things only happen to bad people. If a bad thing has happened to you, there is sin in your life and God is punishing you because good things don't only happen to good people. Bad things only happen to bad people. That's wrong thinking about God. Wrong thinking all the way along. Tragedy in life happens because we, we live in this broken world. But the reality is we serve a God. And this is the second thing I want you to be aware of. We serve a God who's fully aware and fully in charge. Fully aware and fully in charge. God says, I know Job. I know Job to the depth of his heart. Why could God put Job to the test that's coming? Because God knew his character. God knows your character. God knows how much you can take. God knows how strong you are. But God is fully in charge. Did you notice? You can have, what, you can have all his possessions. Don't lay a finger on the man himself. And the adversary has to stay within the boundaries that God sets. Be very much aware of that. God is never out of control. 
He allows the brokenness of this world to continue, but he is never out of control. I've said this so many times, it's one of those, oh yeah, I've heard that before. But I just love it. It was something I heard years ago from Mark Lowry. He said, does it ever occur to you that nothing ever occurs to God? Nothing catches him by surprise. Nothing, he doesn't look and go, whoa, didn't see that happening. God is fully aware and fully in charge. And so in this unseen battle that God sets up with the adversary, he already knows the end before the beginning, and he is fully aware. But that leads us to a third reality. Unfortunately, no one is immune from the brokenness of this world. We live in a broken world. When Adam and Eve sinned in Genesis 3, they plunged this world into sin, and we live in a broken world. And we see how the adversary brings about that brokenness in verses 13 through 19. One day, when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job. And said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby. And the Sabaeans attacked and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword. And I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, the fire of God fell from the heavens and burned up the sheep and the servants. And I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, the Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword. And I'm the only one who's escaped to tell you while he was still speaking. Yet another messenger came and said, your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them and they are dead. And I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. Do you lose your breath in that? Four tragedies in succession. Job doesn't even have a second to process one before he hears about the next. All his livestock taken or killed. All his children are killed. Everything on this earth that gave Job income, security, hope, status, even a legacy, is destroyed in four very quick and swift acts instigated by the adversary. Job doesn't deserve this. Why, he's a good man. He's the greatest man in all the East. Job didn't do anything to deserve this. In fact, remember, Job did sacrifices when his kids were feasting. So you can reason that he had already purified his children and himself before God. He was right with God when everything was taken away. He doesn't deserve this. Job is not immune from the brokenness of of this world. You and I are not immune from the brokenness of this world. Bad stuff happens. 
Good people get cancer and die. Good people are in automobile accidents. Good people lose their homes in fires. And good people go through horrible things. And it's not because somehow God is punishing them. It's because we live in a broken world. And no one is immune from the brokenness of this world. And and the reality is it's not that stuff happens to us. It's how do I respond? Note what happens. Before he had time to fully process, boom, boom. I mean, just gut punches, one right after the other. At this, Job got up, verse 20, and tore his robe and shaved his head, and then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. There is a unique strength in one's worship of God. There is a unique strength in one's worship of God. One thing that we're going to see in this book, it is okay to hurt. It is okay to grieve. It is okay to express yourself in grief grief it is okay to lament don't see job's response of some kind of platitude the joy of the lord is my strength job's response is not stoic it's not unfeeling it flows out of his pain his grief his anguish, his confusion, and trying to make sense of a world that all of a sudden makes no sense. And Job, in that moment, turns to the only source of strength he has left. He turns to God. The first thing he does is he shows those signs of grief, those signs that the ancients showed. He tears his robe. Now you think about that. That had to take a little bit of strength. But sometimes in our grief, there's some extra strength. He just rips his robe. And he shaves his head. And he falls to the ground. And he falls to the ground in worship to God. In my mind's eye, I believe there are tears. I believe there is sobbing as he falls to the ground. The word worship literally means to bow down. The the, the word that the twin word in the New Testament worship means to turn to. I think both are real. He bows down and he turns to God. Worship is literally turning to God. I know what we do in our churches. I led the worship. You mean you led the singing. Because worship is everything about our lives. We present ourselves, Paul says in Romans 12, as a spiritual sacrifice to God, as a living sacrifice to God, which is our spiritual worship. 
When I get up in the morning and I give my day to, the God, to God, I start my day in worship. When I come here to the office and I dig into the text and I read and I write and I think about things, that's worship. When you go to the office and then you deal with numbers or, or you go to the workplace and you're, you're dealing with construction, whatever you do, it's worship. And so in this moment, Job turns to God. To whom do you and I turn first? When the news is good, to whom do you turn first? When the news is bad, to whom do you turn first? Job turned to God. There is nothing that says our worship is limited to just being positive and joyful and happy and dancing a little jig. Sometimes worship turning to God means to bow down to Him in the depth of our grief, in the depth of our pain, in the depth of our frustration, and just to acknowledge that God is there regardless of my circumstances. Job speaks. And one of the things that we miss is sometimes we don't know how long it was between Falling to God and then saying, he may have lain there for, a, for a, quite a while, but finally he speaks. Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I will depart. The Lord gave. The Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Job acknowledges first and foremost that like every human being before him and every human being after him, we come into this world with nothing in and of ourselves. While the term naked does refer to physical nakedness, it also signifies a complete lack of possessions or resources. I came into this world with nothing. I will leave this world with nothing when I go. And the same is true for every one of us. But God is sovereign. And that's the next sentiment. And three times in this little sentiment, he uses the word, the Lord. It's literally the word Yahweh, that highest word for God available in the Hebrew language. The Lord gave. And the Lord has taken away. God, you are sovereign. God, you have the power to give and take away. Job understood what we as American Christians all too often seem to miss. Job realized he had no rights when it came to his relationship with God. Job understood everything he had, everything he had been blessed with, all of his wealth, all of his reputation, all of it had ultimately come from the hand of God. His business acumen, his ability to help his flocks increase, his agricultural acumen, his ability for he and his wife to have ten children, the fact that his children got along, so therefore his good parenting style, his leadership in the community and the region, all of it came from the hand of God. None of it came from Job himself. Therefore, Job realized he had no rights to claim it as his own. The Lord gave me all this, and the Lord took it away. 
So I will just praise the name of the Lord. I don't get it. I don't understand it. I can't handle it right now. I'm in pain. I'm in agony. I don't know where to turn. I'm just going to cling to the rope of my faith that is God and hold on for dear life because it's all I have left. And the writer says in all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. The challenge of the adversary, the adversary failed. The character of God, the person of God was maintained. Job's faith was greater than his possessions, greater than his perceived protections from God. We can learn a lot from Job. You know, my angst from having to clarify my choice of chiropractic treatment all those years ago was placed. I had had nothing to hide that the company was going to take the risk to insure me. They had every right to ask all those questions. There are far more important realities than my inconvenience. And sometimes, though, I make my inconvenience the most important. Years ago, one of my uncles contracted cancer. To remove the cancer, the doctors were going to have to remove one of his eyes, and they would replace it with a glass eye, but he would never see out of that eye again. I remember in a conversation, somebody asked how he was doing with that prospect, and without even really thinking about it, he said, well... The good Lord gave me this eye for 71 years, and it has served me well. But if God wants it back, it's his, and he will help me adjust. We entered a new year on the calendar yesterday. In many ways, it's just another day. You know, like every new year, we enter it with the hopes of it being different. If you have a Facebook account, you know everybody is just hoping that this is a different year just like we hoped last year would be a different year. Oh, we entered the year. We have plans. We have goals. We have dreams. And I don't think there's anything wrong with any of that. But I think maybe the big takeaway from this first chapter of Job is simply this. Everything I have, every ability, every possession, every position, every dollar, every relationship, Every investment, et cetera, et cetera, it's all from God. It is simply on loan to me from him. You see, when my identity is in my relationship with God through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, then I am able to put everything in its proper place. I can give it to God in such a way that I have a soul freedom. I have absolutely no clue what 2022 will hold for us. But I can assure you that as we learn to live daily in a way that releases everything to God, in a way that I have said so many times before that I hold everything up to God in an open hand, when we learn that and when we make that part of our life, 
we will find freedom and stability that will enable us to weather whatever the new year brings so that like Job, we can one day say, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this man Job who although he lost everything, held on to you. Lord, if we have any goals for the new year, may it simply be that we learn daily what it means to cling to you no matter what. So that no matter what happens, our final response will be, may the name of the Lord be praised. In Jesus' name, amen.